Greetings, this is uh, talk number three in a seven-part series in the book of Revelation. My name's Adam. It's great to be sharing God's word with you. I want to start by asking you uh, if you like to be scrutinised. Uh, how do you feel when you are assessed, especially in the context of the church? Maybe we think the church is meant to be inclusive, safe, and free of judgment. And so maybe the idea of assessment or scrutiny is offensive to you. Uh, but life, life is full of moments when we get assessed, isn't it? Uh, no sooner are you born, you are assessed. They're, they have this thing called the AGPA score. For newborns, uh, in the first few minutes of breathing, you can get a 10 out of 10 or not. Uh, we get assessed for sporting team tryouts. We get graded. We get assessed for shoe sizes or music exams or the HSE or Toastmasters. And these assessments, well, they can be the be-all and end-all at the time, but in the long run, who cares in the long run? No one's asked me about my HSC results in donkeys. But when we open chapters 2 and 3, the book of Revelation, we come across the assessment of Jesus. His assessment of the seven churches. And we're going to see that his assessment, uh, that's the assessment that really does matter. And we need to listen. We need to hear the refrain, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's pause and pray. Father God, we pray that as we continue in this wonderful book, you would show us again and again the glory and wonder that is your Son, Jesus, that you would lead us in the way of repentance and faith. All to your praise and glory we ask. Amen. Here, the risen Christ of chapter 1 walks among the lampstands. The lampstands are symbolic of his church. And each church, uh, you might notice, it's addressed in a way that takes us back to that glorious picture of chapter 1. Uh, each time we see it's Jesus that speaks. And what does Jesus value as he speaks to the church? The first thing to notice is that he, hold, he values holding on to the truth. For example, our first church in chapter 2, Ephesus, is praised for being theologically sound. They're faithful to God's word. They got it right. Uh, chapter 2, verse 2 says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. So big ticks from Jesus. They don't put up with wicked people. They know the difference between a true apostle and a false apostle, which is basically means they are discerning about the authority of God's word and where it comes from. Yet Thyatira, 
Uh, you see in verse 18 onwards, their mistake, well, that's the opposite. They accept false teaching and all too readily. False teaching that has led the church down a path of sexual immorality and idolatry. Pergamum is the same, chapter 2, verse 12. They've accepted false teaching. And so Jesus warns them, can you see verse uh, 16? Repent, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Which means that if you accept false teaching or if you perpetuate false teaching, you're going to have to contend with Jesus. That sword of judgment that extends from his mouth that we saw in chapter 1, verse 16. And again in chapter 2, verse 12, it's there again, the double-edged sword. Uh, it's imagery that uh, echoes Isaiah, if you want to look that up. And it's imagery that reappears in chapter 19 from verse 11, if you want to read that a bit later on as well. It's very sobering reading. As Jesus comes to judge with his sword. What else does Jesus value? What, what does sound theology holding on to the truth produce? And the answer, of course, is godly living. This is our second point. False teaching leads to ungodly behaviour. And so when we see people engaging in ungodly behaviour, it's because they've accepted something false and something that is a lie. See, what we believe shows itself in how we live. So chapter 2, verse 14, the church in Pergamum, Jesus says, I've got a few things against you. There are some among you that hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you've also, uh, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent. Or verse 20 of chapter 2. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. But we are supposed to think about the Old Testament Jezebel and liken her, connect her to that person. And so it's no surprise by her teaching it says she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. But see here, the churches have accepted false teaching. And this false teaching leads to not just ungodly behaviour, it's just downright wicked. Yet Jesus praises those who live a godly life. So in chapter 3, verse 4, you know, you have a few people in Sardis. They haven't soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. Sound theology, faithfulness to this, obedience to this, shows itself. It leads to godly living. And this flows 
to the next thing. So what's the third thing that Jesus values? He values those who press on and bear witness. Uh, Ephesus, again, they pressed on. We read about that in verses 2 and 3. They persevered. They endured hardships. They did not grow weary. Pergamum, uh, in chapter 2, verse 13, it says, uh, I, I know where you live, you, yet uh, Satan has his throne. Ooh, terrifying. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. See what's at stake, yet they remain true. Jesus loves that. Smyrna endured suffering in chapter 2 as well, yet they remain true. Philadelphia felt like their strength was failing. There in chapter 3 from verse 7 on. Yet they did not deny God's word or the name of Jesus. So verse 8 of chapter 3, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Pay careful attention to verse 8 of chapter 3. You've kept my word. You haven't denied my name. Uh, the reason many of the churches are suffering is that they're committed to the gospel. Remember, it's because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus that John is on this prison island, Alcatraz, if you like, Patmos. And we too can be sure that as we are committed to the gospel, we will also suffer. And so it follows. Now, we don't suffer for suffering's sake. Uh, we don't suffer uh, for no reason or for an empty reason. Our suffering, it's the context of the gospel. And so the invitation is to be willing. Notice as each church is addressed, each message concludes with a carrot. It finishes with a promise for the victorious, for those who overcome. Each of the seven churches have that promise, for those who overcome it. In your translation, it might say, for those who are victorious. But overcoming is, um, uh, I remember in the 1990s, Hillsong uh, Church uh, had a very popular song. And the lyrics go like this. You've turned my mourning into dancing. You have turned my sorrow into joy. And then they sing, this is how we overcome. This is how we overcome. This is how we overcome. Twelve times they'll sing that line. This is how we overcome. But after twelve times, I'm still left wondering how. How do we overcome? What does that mean? But these seven messages... To the seven churches, tell us clearly, overcoming is being faithful to Jesus till the end, even if things get hard. Overcoming is being true to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
Overcoming is holding on to the truth, that thing that Jesus values. Keeping a sound doctrine. Overcoming is, is to live out that godly life in response to this. Overcoming is about being faithful to Jesus, uh, persevering even if it might cost you your life. Overcoming is about continuing to bear witness to Jesus. And we're going to see that all the way through the book of Revelation. We're going to see the church being true to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus as John was. And see today that these are the things that Jesus values. But it's also to know what lies at the end of the race, isn't it? So, for example, uh, remember the promise, chapter 2, Every, every message to the church ends with a promise of hope. So the, the invitation in chapter 2, verse 7 is, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious, to the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is something yet to happen. Even though your mind went to Eden, which is right too, your mind is to go to the new Eden, which appears at the end of the book. Or chapter 2, verse 10, talks about a victor's crown. Or in chapter 3, your name is going to be written in the book of life. Or in chapter 3, verse 21, something staggering. You're invited to sit with Jesus on his throne. Wow. And so much symbolism points us forward to the last chapters of this book when the fullness of the new creation comes in. But of course, Revelation is also going to show us that we're not there yet. That we still have to walk through the valley of the shadow, so to speak. There's still darkness that we have to navigate before we land at the great banquet table in heaven. Psalm 23, isn't it? There is still trouble. And, and you can see that actually in these seven churches, this discord. Because three of these churches think they're doing really well. But Ephesus, who got so many good ticks, well, in chapter 2, verse 5, it says that they've fallen so far. That they've forsaken the love that they had at first, verse 4. And then in verse 5, Jesus says, repent, do the things you did at first. And if you don't, I'm going to come and take your lampstand away which means that their status as a church is tenuous. Or Sardis, in chapter 3, uh, if you read the message there, uh, they're as good as dead. They think they're alive. They think they have life, that they're animated, and wow, look at them go. But Jesus is saying, basically, they've barely got a pulse. Chapter 3, verse 2, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember there what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and, and repent. And Laodicea, there in chapter 3, verse 14 onwards, they're tepid. They're like dishwater that's gone cold. Yeah, They're lukewarm. And so Jesus, in verse 16 of chapter 3, 
your text will say, oh, I'm going to spit you out, literally vomit. They're about to become chunder on the floor, out of Jesus' mouth. He's that unhappy with them. They, but can you see, they all think they're okay. But they're self-deceived. They're deluded and they're not okay and they are in great spiritual peril. And this is the assessment of Jesus. How do you feel? Is it every 10 years we get the National Life Church Survey? Maybe, as we think about assessment, we, we, we care about the scrutiny, uh, our reputation in the community as a church family. Maybe the only assessment of St Augustine's here at Inverell, maybe the only assessment that counts in your mind is yours. As I prepared this, it dawned on me, it's fairly incredible, isn't it, to think that the church has to meet other people's standards. Hmm. I wonder what Jesus thinks about that. Because here, the only assessment that counts is Jesus. Which raises the question then, the obvious question must be, how would Jesus see our church? Does St Augustine's, do we major on the majors? Or do we major on the minors? And then you might come back and say, well, Adam, it depends on who decides what the majors are. And the answer, of course, is, well, Jesus does, surely. We've already seen what the majors are for Jesus. A church committed to his word that holds on to the truth. A church committed to godliness. A church committed to pressing on and bearing witness. See, how do these majors for Jesus, how do they stack up compared to our core values? Do we even know what they are? I'll have to put them in the bulletin, won't I? And so we are right to ask, are we a church faithfully committed to God's word? Are we a church committed to godliness, the spiritual well-being of our people? Do we care deeply about that? Are we a church committed to pressing on and bearing witness as we navigate COVID-19? These are important things for us to be thinking about. And as your pastor, as a church, I think we're given it a fair crack that we've been pretty good at majoring on the majors. Still work to do. Uh, but the big positive is that we really have valued uh, a commitment to God's word. We've demonstrated that. Uh, a commitment to godliness. Well, that we're in isolation, so you know the answer to that. A commitment to pressing on. Yeah, people have committed to that. We've seen evidence. And bearing witness. Well, that's a bit trickier. But certainly with these YouTube 
church services, our witness has grown. Who would have thought? But that's not all there is to our witness, of course. Now, all this scrutiny and all this assessment, uh, maybe that has bristled us. Maybe it's a burr in our saddle today as you've listened to this. And I want to say to you, that's, that's right. I think that's Jesus' goal. And I think most certainly that if you've been bristled, then that's your pride itching, waiting to be scratched. And that's something that bears thinking about. But here is the last thing that's really important for us to see. (laughs) See, these churches have big problems. They're far from perfect. And so we ask, where is Jesus in all of this? Where is Jesus in all of this? And the answer is, can you see he is present? That he speaks. That, yeah, he threatens because there's so much at stake because he cares. He pastors. He ministers. He gives people a bit of a kick and tells them to wake up. And so you need to see, and I need to see, we need to see the forbearance of Jesus here. We need to see his patience, see how slow he is to anger and see most especially the motivation is love. Love often gets uh, forgotten in cases of, this is a picture of church discipline, isn't it? It's tough love. That despite their disgrace, Jesus walks with uh, his church And as you absorb that, can you see now that Jesus also walks with you? That Jesus walks with us, warts and all. That we are far from perfect. We're not perfect. We're not. But see the grace in that Jesus walks with us. See the grace in chapter 3 verse 9. That those whom I love, Jesus says, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Satan wants you to think you're isolated and alone and that you don't matter and that no one cares. And so it doesn't matter what you do. You can do what you like. And I want to say to you today, that's a lie. Jesus is present. He knows us inside out. He knows our strengths and weaknesses, our challenges and vices, our faults. Yet he bears with us. He is present. And that is his grace. 
This is a glimpse of the seven churches, and by extension, it's a glimpse of Christ's church universal. That's us. Despite our imperfections and our own disgrace, he calls us to repent. Repentance means a turning to him, holding on to the truth, living it out, persevering and witnessing, holding fast to Jesus till the end. And that is all of his grace. Amen.